What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. I was about 14 when I joined the Jazz Youth Orchestra from Islington. I just used to scat sing and I wasn't that good but I I knew that I enjoyed performing and I loved to dance. I loved being on stage. Society does view a woman differently when they've had a child and they also View, I've experienced that they view a woman with a political voice differently to a man with a political voice. At the same time... He said, but you have to reshoot that video because America will not buy a song with a white woman kissing a black man like that. And I said to him, I will not break America on those terms, I'll break America on my own terms. And he said, okay. Hello and welcome to this live podcast recording of the now award-winning How I Found My Voice Live. I'm Samira Ahmed. I'm going behind the celebrity persona to find out what influences shaped their success. How did politicians, artists and writers grow up to become such great and unique communicators? And my guest today is perfect for How I Found My Voice. She has one of the most distinctive and delightful voices in the music business. A voice that is rich, that is knowing, that is cosmopolitan, reflecting her own life. She is the multi-award-winning Paloma Faith and her debut album Do You Want the Truth or Something Beautiful was released in 2009. It's been certified double platinum in the UK and she's one of only two British female artists this decade, the other being Adele, to have their last three albums go double platinum in the UK. She also won the Best British Female Solo Artist Award at the Brits in 2015 having been nominated three times in the past decade. Welcome Paloma. Thank you. It's so lovely to be here. Meet you, Samira. You were a very much a London girl. So take me back, take us back to your childhood in the 1980s, early 1990s. What was it like? Well, it was a melting pot and I was raised by a single parent mother. Um, my father's heritage is Spanish. My mum's from Norfolk and they brought me up in Hackney. I was born and raised in Hackney and for all its 
in all its glory, exposed to, you know, many different cultures. My mother and father divorced when I was two, and my my stepfather is of Chinese origin. So growing up, I not only was I in like a predominantly Afro-Caribbean and Turkish area, which is like what the sort of main mix is in, in Hackney, where I'm from, also my weekends were at my Spanish dad's house and then at home we ate quite like we sort of ate quite a lot of Chinese influenced cuisine and stuff because my the men in my family have always cooked and the women can't be bothered so (laughs) so all of my like kind of nostalgia about food and stuff is always either Spanish or Chinese it's quite like you know how you always go back to your childhood when you think about what your favourite meals are. And then I, yeah, I was relatively shy and quiet, which surprises a lot of people, even to the point where quite a lot of my school reports say that I was distant and dreamy and didn't always focus and I struggled to make friendships, I think, as a, as a younger child. And then kind of grew, when I went hit in my teens and stuff, I got, I was sort of raised in quite a socially aware household. My mum worked in Hackney Education Services for 48 years. She was very politically correct. She was really quite, well, she was very, she is very socialist. And I was raised on like a protest trail of like anti-Thatcher marches, race equality. And we had a lady live with us from South Africa that was a teacher she lived with us for about a year during apartheid. She was black, she was from South Africa. Her name was Zanelli and she... My mum sort of applied to allow some a, another teacher from South Africa to live at ours while it was all happening. And then when Nelson Mandela was released, she went back. But she taught in the same school as my mum and she lived with us and spoke to me quite a lot as a child about what was happening there and about racial segregation and all of these things went you know like into my core and then I became like I guess moral and assertive about human rights and civil rights and stuff. Well it sounds like you you had a really strong well you use the word yourself strong moral sense of of what was right and wrong from a really young age and can I ask what music you were listening to because I think of the late 80s early 90s as an incredibly exciting time you know people like Madonna people like Annie Lennox what were your musical sounds yeah well that those that was like my taste so my father was um, a jazz fanatic and I went to his at weekends he collected every jazz vinyl ever released on the Blue Note record label and when I used to go to his house at weekends, he used to give me kind of a jazz education. He'd be like, pick a letter, and then I'd pick a letter, and he'd alphabetised all of his records. And then I'd have like a day of something like Duke Ellington or Cassandra Wilson or Al Hibbler or like whoever it was, Thelonious Monk, I mean, all these amazing people. And then at home with my mum, she was really into protest songs from the 60s, so she loved Nina Simone, Bob Dylan, and all that kind of like 60s pop music, Motown as well. But she particularly liked politicised music from that era. And then my own taste 
was kind of like Annie Lennox and Madonna and Michael Jackson. I think Kylie Minogue as well. It was one of the first cassette tapes that I bought. No, but that's great. It's not that, I mean, the, the, the eclecticism is really important. And I think of your school reports when you say they described you as dreamy before, you know, when you were in primary school. Isn't that the age when you just, you were clearly absorbing so much from what was going on in your home, being made aware of the political issues, and then just listening to all kinds of music and maybe it was all sifting and settling inside. Yeah. Inside Paloma's brain. And then in the 90s, there was this like huge amazing moment that I remember where I was a teenager and I was I got so obsessed by New Jack Swing and I was really into like 90s R&B and then later Neo Soul which was kind of like a place where me and my father were able to like find a common ground where kind of R&B mixed with jazz and there was and it that was also quite politicized like bands like Arrested Development and rappers like Common and the roots and they were really talking about you know race racism in America which seems appropriate today but I remember like really absorbing all of those songs and they sung about like Arrested Development in particular who were my favorite band when I was young like about homelessness and the class divide and and race divides and stuff in the states but I've always I've always wanted to write more politically but I feel like it's um it's a different era now, and I'm sure we'll discuss that later. We will. No, no. Well, you've definitely sown a seed there, which we'll come back to. I want to ask one more thing about school, because, you know, you mentioned how you seemed to be very shy, a bit of an introvert. But there was a key moment when you played a dinosaur. Am I right in the school play? Yeah. So when I was about seven, my teacher had sort of cited that I had a what they called self-assertion issues. And they cast me as like head dinosaur in a play called Dinosaurs and All That Rubbish, which was in the late 80s. And it was about um, the environment. So obviously we haven't listened to our education because we still have these issues now. But it was all about looking after our world and not polluting and stuff. And I played the head dinosaur and I had to roar and be like the boss of the play and I feel like that really brought me out of my shell because I became somebody else in that and I feel like that skit that really stuck with me that thing that I can be you know I can roar louder if I'm pretending to be someone else and I feel like that's essentially what I've done for the rest of my career. There's something quite political isn't there about a girl very young being given permission to be as loud as possible. And I just I just think you're right to have identified that as something. Did, did things feel different afterwards? I mean, I even wondered when you started to think about yourself as a singer and the possibility of singing as a career. That was, that came quite late. I was very academic later in school. I was quite a slow starter because of my confidence. But then when I went to secondary school, I did do some things like I set up a the, back in the day the big charity for um, racial equality was called Black and White Unite and I set up like a Black and White Unite group in my school and I was really into dance because I started to dance when I was four and I used to sort of devote all of my time to doing that and I didn't really sing for a long time. I was about 14 when 
I joined the Jazz Youth Orchestra from Islington. I just used to scat sing and I wasn't that good, but I I knew that I enjoyed performing and I loved to dance. I loved being on stage and I think what's inherently at the core of everything I've ever done, when you look at my CV, which is quite long, I've always been enjoyed being watched and I think that my voice has manifested in many ways, but I'm I'm very comfortable with eyes on me. I feel like that's the thing that's kind of the thread through all of my CV of magician's assistant, life drawing model, um, even working at, you know, an underwear shop agent provocateur that has this iconic outfit that sort of draws attention. What is the outfit? It's just like a little sort of pink dress, but it looks a bit like something from Greece. And everyone wears the same thing, so everyone's like, oh, those are the girls that work, you know. And it's quite theatrical and performative. And I think I had some amazing teachers. I went to a school which was classified a failing school, and I emerged with all A stars and A's in my GCSEs. And it had such a sort of bad rap, my school, but I think that it was because of largely to do with underfunding and, you know, the the catchment area that it was in people didn't have as much support at home and things but the teaching was incredible and all the teachers were really strong socialists like at the weekends they used to sell the socialist worker in Hackney Central and it was like a really community thing all of that that's underpinned all of my upbringing you seem to have thrived in this really political environment and obviously had good motivation to have come through and kind of performed academically so well. And you talked about how you you realised you were happy to be looked at. You had this amazing visual confidence. And I was looking through all your album covers and the absolutely wonderful composition of the images. They're beautiful, they're sensual, but they're never exploitative. You know, there's you with flowers in your hair. There's the one that plays with the iconography of Jesus. And I'm fascinated by how early you had that visual sense alongside the, the sort of the dancing performative sense. I feel like to communicate is the core of what I do. It's about finding a way of communicating that goes beyond language almost. And it's all about reaching out in, in terms of like the human condition, what, what unites us, what makes us the same rather than what separates us. It's about sort of developing, yeah, a universal language. And I feel like that I was visual before I was academic. I was very behind with reading and writing and maths for a long, long time, but I was very good at art as a kid. And then I, you know, was good at that right through. And I thought I was going to go to art school for my degree, but I decided that I could do that later so I went to dance school instead which I think in hindsight was a mistake. So this is the um, Northern School of Contemporary Dance which is where is that in Leeds? Yeah it's in Leeds yeah so I ended up training as a contemporary dancer which I was very good when I joined I was a good dancer but I think I left a not very good part. What, what, what happened? I don't respond well to constant like negativity and I feel like that it was very old-fashioned method of teaching that sort of was grounded and focusing on 
could try harder. And I've always been somebody that responds to encouragement. Like I really flourish when encouraged and I sort of see that that works on most people really. Like, you know, even now that I'm doing a series of The Voice Kids, I can just see how much better they get the more I say how talented they are. And I just think that this school was very old fashioned of the kind of, I guess it's derivative of ballet training that's just all very negative about body image and how competitive one can be and not kind of like acknowledging or empathising with the restraints of one's actual physical body. Like, you you know, there are anatomical reasons why some people can't do some things and some can, and they wouldn't acknowledge that. It would just be like, well, you're just not working hard enough. But you then went on to do theatre design as a master's at Central St. Martyrs. Yeah, I did a, a master's. It was called Scenography, which was essentially should have really been called time-based art because it was about every kind of art form that was time-based. So like film and performance, theatre, site-specific, you know, projects, performance art, like all of that, but time-based moving art, basically. And was it an inspiring time? So often you find, you know, you were at college with people who, who end up being friends. Did it have that effect on you? It was so inspiring. I didn't stay friends with the people on that course because because actually there was hardly anybody from the UK on that course. It's very international and they were so inspiring. And I think you know, in hindsight, I was 21, I'd just finished a dance degree and everybody else on that course was like in their 30s, 40s and 50s and they had like a whole life of, they all had a life of experience. They were architects and there were, you know, theatre directors from Brazil and dancers from Germany and it was like all a melting pot of kind of performance experience but they were all very experienced and it was very profound for me because all these kind of like grown-ups were like feeding me all this information I was just absorbing it I was reading the whole time you know I was introduced to I'd say books and theories that have influenced and shaped my work for the rest of my life are there particular ones that stand out for you that influenced you on um, books or theories? Yeah, um, there's one called The Theatre and It's Double by Antonin Artaud, which is about how, which goes back to what I was talking about with the dinosaur, but it's essentially about how everybody's playing a role in life, in reality, and that we're all acting. Like we all subconsciously become stereotypes almost of like for example a fireman has a certain sort of set of characteristics or a secretary or to do certain jobs you have to adopt certain characteristics that are almost performative and I found that quite interesting. So then when you do start singing how did that affect the way you thought about yourself? And I'll give you an example and I interviewed Debbie Harry they had a director who worked with with them when she was in a girl group before Blondie and they were taught method acting as singing so if you listen to all her songs there's a performance going on where she's put herself into the persona of the character of the song you're describing something different 
Well, I don't know, because I feel like I often embody icons when I go on stage. Like, I pretend or I emulate other icons, which is like a character. So I would, like, think about someone like Debbie Harry, or I think... I quite often think about Grace Jones to feel empowered and like, and I also think that, you know, so the way that I communicate with my audience live is, was an accident and that's become one of the most successful things for me and I think I attribute a lot of my live success like as in ticket sales with this thing. So what happened was when I first started out, I'd come out of art school and I was really into performance art and I'd spent a lot of time performing in art galleries and doing these experimental performances. And one day I walked out on stage with my first album and I had this sort of thing planned that was kind of, I guess, influenced by Grace Jones or Bjork or someone of that ilk that's like super mystical and they don't speak much and you're sort of transported and they're like otherworldly and I'd sort of decided coming out of art school that that's what I wanted to do and one day the power cut during the gig and a lot of things went off and it was really uncomfortable and I said well that's ruined the mirage and the whole audience started laughing everyone cracked up and I sat on the edge of the stage as like as me and I was like oh, well, I'd had this plan that I was going to, like, slowly but surely become, like, an arty icon, and now what am I going to do? I've got to talk to you, haven't I? And everyone was just laughing and going, yeah, talk to us. And I was just, like, talking about my day and sort of funny things that happened, and the whole thing, like, the bubble burst, and it had such a sort of huge effect on the response of my audience that, that I, I didn't ever stop doing that anymore. And when I went to see Dolly Parton perform, I realised that's what she does as well. And I found that so reassuring because for a while I was worried that maybe I was too real and that it wasn't value for money, that people weren't being transported to like this other world. But then when I'd seen Dolly Parton do it and she tells stories about her life and I do that as well... I found it quite mesmerising and special because, in a way, you're, you get something more than what you can get from listening to an album at home. Quoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline.
I want to ask about your singing voice because it's so distinctive. And I was just thinking it's this amazing set of factors. There's your accent, the way you wrap yourself around different sounds. It's so fully formed. Did it just emerge by itself when you first started recording? No. I think that I fell into singing by accident. I sort of did it as a hobby. As I said, I was like 14 in that band. And then at school, I did a few concerts. And I never had a very strong voice. My performance came before my singing. I started out in cabaret and somebody saw me once performing as a cabaret and was like, oh, you're so amazing. And then I sung at the end of my cabaret. They were like, oh, how do you feel about writing your own songs? And I'd always written poetry, but never songs. And I started to try a bit. And I guess when you listen to my first album, I think you can hear that that's an untrained voice. It's very thin compared to what it is now. And I really genuinely believe that I didn't think that I was going to be a singer or that I was good enough. So I started to lose my voice when I first went on tour quite often. And I would do these gigs where I would have to write down what I wanted to say and my band would read it out and I'd save my voice for singing. And it was quite uncomfortable, but also people liked it because it was like I wouldn't cancel. And then I started to, you know, really work at it and I felt guilty and I felt indebted to the people who bought tickets and I started to do a lot of lessons and I spent a lot of time honing it in. And then through experience and practice plus the lessons, which were happening in front of the public eyes, like I was learning as I was in the public eye, I didn't do anything before, then I was sort of doing it with them. And you can hear album to album how it gets stronger and stronger. And I do think that my voice is better today than it was on album one. And I think it's a combination of that work, age and experience, as in hardship makes a voice better. You've been talking about the fact that you were taking singing lessons and the audience was seeing the impact of them, you know, kind of as, as it was all working out. So it went straight into practice. But I guess what you really know is that the, the voice is a muscle and you basically became a professional. I think it was a combination of like the technicality and becoming a professional mixed with life experience. And I feel like quite a lot of huge things happen in my life that were difficult that really influenced the way that I sing and I feel like you don't get it without that like it's something to do with pain like emotional pain that I think makes a voice better and that's why I think it's a strange juxtaposition between the pop world today and of the past was like I think that in order to sing really well, you have to have a lot of experience. So I don't understand why a lot of the successful pop people are so young, because they don't. And um, there are a few exceptions, like you can tell that Billie Eilish is like a profoundly deep young person. But I just think that like, that that's, she's complete anomaly and very rare and I just think that my voice gets better every time something awful happens. 
Well, it does keep getting better. And I think that richness is is very exciting because one one looks forward to what you're going to do as much as one looks back to all the albums um, that you've already made. Did you feel ready to be a star when your first album, Do You Want the Truth or Something Beautiful, came out and was such a success? No, I was... I never anticipated that I would become as successful as I did. I... I felt like I came from quite humble beginnings and I I was surprised and not prepared really and I don't think anything prepares you for that and I also think that it was quite difficult for my mother. She, I don't know, she's, she, I, I think that she thinks that um, celebrity culture is really unhealthy and she was very worried about the impact that would have on me knowing what I'd like, like kind of quite a sensitive person and, you know, that you do have to become quite thick-skinned really to deal with it or you have to figure out your own little ways to cope with some of the criticism and stuff like that. And I, I don't, I think I've developed quite a good way of dealing with it, but I don't know, I don't think my mum has still. What's your way of dealing with it? I think that I have to just accept almost, which is my mum's advice. So I don't know why she can't do it. But I have to accept that not everybody will ever like, not everyone will like you. And I also think that sometimes when people are attacking or they're they're angry at something about me, that often it says more about them than it says about me. And that's just, that's kind of how I cope with it because I don't ever feel that enraged by such subtlety as a person so I think that those people must be already upset. last album because that was quite political you know you even talked about Brexit uh, you featured the left-wing activist Owen Jones talking about the politics of hope and um, brilliantly Samuel L. Jackson calling for a revolution I think it's fair to say that of all your albums so far it didn't sell as well as the others but you obviously made a very conscious decision to put politics much more front and centre in your work tell me about that decision and why it was so important I can't tell if the reason why that record didn't do as well was because I had a baby or because it was political. And I think that it's really important to sort of be aware that, like, despite, you know, people's views on, you know, with all these kind of movements and things about human rights and, you know, gender and race pay gap, I feel like all of those subjects, are real and that society does view a woman differently when they've had a child and they also view I've experienced that they view a woman with a political voice differently to a man with a political voice at the same time as I've experienced the same sort of prejudice about my sense of humor because I do have quite a sort of um quick-witted way and I I think sometimes that can cause offence when it comes from a woman's mouth in a way that some of the same jokes could be said by a man and not have meet with the same kind of defensiveness. You know you've brought me onto an issue which I wanted to raise you know there are 
There are a lot of people making comparisons between now and the 1980s for the social divisions, the anger of politics. But as you know, social media has really made it much more personal and much more abusive in many ways, particularly for women. That perception, if you say the wrong thing, you could get, you know, to use that dreadful word, cancelled. Have you felt affected by that? A hundred percent. And I feel like the core of what I've said in, in my political with a small p album, because I wouldn't say it was particularly political, I'd say it was about social commentary and it's generally about good. It's not about kind of trying to force a political angle. It's just about basically saying, you know, we need to do better. I mean, there's a song on there called The Architect, which is about improving how we treat Mother Nature, as in our world, which isn't a debate. I gave you my everything, but it was never enough for you. And just like young daughters do, we make mistakes we can't undo. Whatever I do for you, you will never be satisfied. You bathe in my waters Tell the dying of the tide We live in a culture where people are always talking about being offended and it's like everyone wants to have a debate and and for me, I don't think that inequality is a debate it's not a conversation it's factual you know, you look at the stats of, you know, gender pay gap, race relations, all of these things, and you see those statistics. Now, I don't understand why it then has to turn into a conversation about whether racism or sexism or inequalities around surrounding disability exist, because we know that those things do. So I think my, well, the reason why I describe it as an album with a small p is that I found it strange that people would say, oh, I didn't like that album because I disagreed with your views. And it's like, but what was there to agree or disagree with? I don't quite understand what was particularly right or left. It was literally about basic human needs. About It's about civil rights. It's about kindness. It's about caring for our neighbours. I, I mean, basic sort of, teachings that are in every religious book you've ever read. And but it goes back to this issue about, you know, there is more it's not just people seem to take offence more, it's that there's also more caution then among, you know, say some music companies about should you be doing these things. And I know that, you know, you put out something, one of your social media feeds about Black Lives Matter and it did lose you a certain number of followers, didn't it? Well I was I was commenting throughout the the, the time when it was happening and I still am at least weekly because it's something very dear to my heart that I've always been very passionate about as I said before I set up Black and White United School and I lost 5,000 followers in the two weeks where from Blackout Tuesday where everyone's posting Black Square to today I've lost 5,000 followers and I've, I'm stunned because all I've been talking about is basic human rights. Strange, isn't it? You, you have, as you say, made clear your support for the Black Lives Matter campaign. And it's been fascinating to see the kind of ripples of it spread into all kinds of industries, including journalism, television, which is my industry. Do you think there needs to be an honest reckoning within the music industry? 
I do. I mean, I do think as well that there are different ways that this manifests. And, you know, like people are in a, quite a lot of denial about how Britain's different to America. And I think that the only difference between Britain and America really is a cultural one in that Americans are very much more open in general about what they think. So their racism is explicit. And I would say that in Britain, the same feelings are there, the core feelings, but that we culturally don't express those feelings in the same way. Years ago, I shot a video for Only Love Can Hurt Like This, which was the biggest song that I had written by Diane Warren. And in the video, I cast a friend of mine as the love interest. I was one day flown to America and I was asked by a very high up exec who was African-American to, he said, this is the biggest chance you've got at breaking the States with your music career. And I said, oh, I'm really excited. I can't wait. Like, this is the moment I've been waiting for. And he said, but you have to reshoot that video because America will not buy a song with a white woman kissing a black man like that. And I was just, like, completely shocked. And obviously, as well, like, taken aback because he was an African-American exec. And I was just like, I can't do that. I I just was like, I said I wouldn't be able to, if I broke America and I made loads of money as a consequence of that, knowing that I'd re-shot a video to make it, you know, not a biracial relationship, I wouldn't be able to live with myself. I don't want that money. It's dirty. Till I feel your touch. decision of yours to refuse to reshoot it yeah but it was obvious to me that that was like what I had to do like I just wouldn't be able to live with myself doing that and I said to him I will not break America on those terms I'll break America on my own terms and he said okay and then and flew me back and I didn't hear from my record company again after that but there's still time <laughs> That's a that's a, a shocking, shocking story, Paloma. But I feel like quite a lot of things like that happen, you know, all the time. The music industry is an amazing thing and wonderful, but it's a business and people have very in, in like narrow ways of viewing how to turn something and make it into some they're not willing to take risks around money basically and I was shocked as shocked as you are now that that was a situation that was I was put in but when I've spoken to other friends and colleagues and peers who are not white in the music business they're not shocked and that's a shame well if some more of these stories were to come out I think it it would shock people to hear that your experience wasn't even unique among other musicians that you knew. 
but I do think you know there are there is a lot of good as well happening like there's a lot of I think you know for example this year at the Brits the album by Dave this rapper who's really political and really vocal about British race relations and class divide and all those things like he was he's being really celebrated and I do think there's great moments in time that happen but I just don't understand why you know it's not always that way because it should really be I think in culture that culture leads the way for progress like that and I know that my mum being you know young in the 60s they really felt they were leading in that sense both with you know race sexism everything and they really felt they were like surfing on the wave that was of progress and I just think that now it's gone backwards I genuinely do my mum's just shocked she's like all the work we did back then and all the support and I just genuinely thought it would never go back to that again and it is you have to fight for it to to keep it afloat sort of and I, I think maybe that's happened a bit in education because I keep hearing stories amongst this moment in time where people talk about a lack of education when it comes to black history. And I remember in my school in Hackney that we weren't, we were taught about black history both in a, an empowerment sense and also in a, you know, the tragedy, but also about the pioneers and about the innovators and about the amazing women and like that was my memory of education was not just about the victimization of a, of a race it was also about the uprising and like the amazing people that did incredible things and I just I don't know why that's not being taught anymore. You are acting more and more now. You're currently playing Bette Sykes, the villain in DC Comics' Pennyworth um, TV series. I'm partly intrigued by the breakout role in the St. Trinian's films. A lot of actors, you know, got their first break in those films. What is your take on, on acting and how important it is to your career going forward? I feel very passionate about it because I think that it's, it's sort of... I think it's giving me an insight into human condition that maybe I've lost touch with a bit because the more successful you get, the more diff the, the less t in touch you are with like just everyday experiences. And I really like to go back to those like core root feelings of this character in particular who's written so well by Bruno Heller that I play is she's like a northern woman and she's, well, she's, completely oblivious to the fact that she scares everybody and it's just an interesting character to play because she's, she's she's quite autistic in the way she's just like socially very she doesn't read social cues very well and everyone's sort of scared of her because she's completely inappropriate I don't know I sort of love her more than I love who I am in a lot of ways <laughs> I, I really appreciated your honesty and sharing the song lyrics with us and sharing some of these experiences which you've not spoken about before, um, as well as such optimism. And I love that morality is almost the first word you raised and the last one as well. Paloma Faye, thank you.
This podcast was made by Intelligence Squared. The producer was Farah Jassat. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe. Tell your friends and your family to check it out. And we'd really appreciate it if you could also take a very quick moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. This helps us to raise the profile of the podcast and it helps other people to find the show. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.